This episode has a parental advisory and is not suitable for children. The narrative contains strong language of a sexual nature. Okay, good news. One mystery has been solved. Thanks to Reggie Ellis, the publisher of the Exeter Sun Gazette, we now know exactly why D.A. Ward's report cleared D'Angelo and Donna's homicide. Reggie has a podcast called The Paper Trail, and he interviewed Assistant D.A. Alavezos and D.A. Ward on his show last week. Just as a reminder for those listeners who haven't followed along with the documents in our blog posts, the D.A. cleared D'Angelo based on 2011 DNA testing that was conducted in the Fresno Crime Lab. The item tested was a slide designated VPH for victim's pubic hair. As far as we have been able to ascertain, this slide was created in 1976 in a forensics lab in Oakland run by Chuck Morton. The first time anyone outside of that lab became aware of the slide was in May 2002. Back in the 1990s, Clifton's attorneys had sent requests for all evidence held by Morton's lab, Ed Blake's lab, and TCSO. Both Morton and Blake repeatedly responded that they held no evidence in the case and that everything that had been in their possession was returned to TCSO in 1976. The attorneys also asked Grubb in Morton's lab, and he responded that they didn't even make lab notes in the case. TCSO also said they didn't have any evidence or evidence records in their possession. Finally, a judge had had enough and ordered that all evidence documents, lab notes, and chain of custody records had to be turned over to Clifton. That discovery included the documents we've posted that proved that Byrd ordered all TCSO-held evidence destroyed in 1977. Blake continued to assert that he had no evidence or lab notes, and Morton finally, after additional denials, produced lab notes, time slips, invoices, evidence receipts, and photocopies of over 40 slides still held in his lab. Morton contended that he hadn't failed to disclose the slides, but that they weren't evidence slides, only reference samples for comparison purposes. In 2003, after further review of the slides, Morton's lab sent the following letters to Clifton's attorney. April 3, 2003. Under the supervision of Charles Morton and the direction of Tulare County District Attorney Tara Howard, I sent all pertinent reports, evidence documents, and analytical notes contained in Mr. Clifton's case file at the time of NCIP's request of May 2002 to Mr. Clifton's attorney, Linda Starr. A set of the same documents was also sent to Attorney Howard. There are no evidence items remaining in our custody. The evidence was released to Sergeant Vern Hensley of Tulare County Sheriff's Coroner's Office on June 10, 1976 and July 13, 1976. Please see pages 4, 5, 6, and 15 of the photocopied documents previously provided. Let me know if I may be of any further assistance. Sincerely, Terry Geo. June 23, 2003. Our laboratory is in receipt of your request, dated June 13, 2003, to locate and identify the photocopied slides contained in discovery materials on pages 33 through 37, which was sent to NCIP in May of 2002. Mr. Morton located the slides. The slides remain in our custody. Our laboratory does not have slides of the victim's hair containing semen. Thank you, 
Terry L. Geo, Forensic Technician, Forensic Science Division. That put the issue to rest as far as Clifton's attorneys were concerned, but Clifton filed his own civil rights case in federal court, arguing that Powell and Byrd had violated his civil rights through the suppression and destruction of exculpatory evidence, and that the Tulare DA's refusal to agree to the testing of the reference slides in Morton's lab was a continuing violation. Eventually, Clifton obtained an order to get a few of the slides tested. There were three slides that the court agreed could potentially contain the killer semen. Slide VPH, slide number 54, which contained one of Donna's hairs that had been removed from her thigh, and bindle number 37, threads cut from Donna's scarf that had been tied around her waist. The court ordered that each item should be examined for semen and DNA tested. Here is the lab standard for a semen examination in 2011. Confirmatory tests for semen, the Christmas tree stain. The most reliable confirmation for the presence of semen is the positive visual identification of sperm cells, or spermatozoa, using the Christmas tree stain. Two main reagents are used consecutively to produce this distinctive stain. PIC stains the neck and tail portions of the sperm in green and blue, while nuclear fast red gives the sperm heads a red color and the tips of the heads, an area known as the caps, a pink color. This color pattern seems quite unique and may render sperm cells easily distinguishable under a microscope. The analyst must be trained to make visual distinctions between sperm heads and other types of cells in the mix, particularly mucosal or epithelial cells whose nuclei will also stain red. That is exactly the procedure that was used on slide VPH, and no other type of semen testing or examination was conducted on any sample. For the forensic geeks out there, there was no RSID, AP, or P30 testing. To be 100% clear, no test of any type at any time has ever detected seminal fluid, sperm cells, epithelial cells, or any substance that could ever be called semen on slide VPH. Nothing, never, it didn't happen. The same examination was conducted on slide number 54, and it was negative for both semen and male DNA. We can't find any record for a semen examination on the threads, item number 37, but no male DNA was detected. No semen, spermatozoa, or seminal fluid was found or reported on any item tested by the Fresno lab in 2011. There is absolutely no basis in fact or reality for anyone to believe that this semen from Donna's killer was DNA tested in 2011. So, back to Reggie's podcast interview. What caused the DA's office to clear Joseph D'Angelo and Donna's murder? It appears to be a combination of persistent belief, wishful thinking, and denial. Does the DA's office have any testing of slide VPH that shows semen, seminal fluid, or spermatozoa? No. Are they aware that both Morton's lab and the Fresno lab have told the DA's office that slide VPH did not contain semen? Yes. Alavezos' argument is actually a fascinating case study in how beliefs transform into facts and why this type of thinking should never be anywhere near a criminal case or conviction integrity review. At the heart of this is the persistent belief that semen was present on Donna's pubic hair. 
Alavesos appears to believe this based on his own office's arguments and appeals briefs and the testimony of Ed Blake at trial. He also believes that Blake's sample was not ABO typed and that there was no finding of blood type A. Testimony of Ed Blake at trial, June 29, 1976. Powell. All right, now Mr. Blake. With regard to this case of kidnapping and murder of Donna Jo Richmond, did you have occasion to examine certain samples that were presented to you? Yes, I did. And what were those samples that were presented to you? May I refer to my report? Certainly. I received from Mike Rubb of the Institute of Forensic Sciences on the 6th of January, 1976, five items. They are one bottle of autopsy blood labeled Donna Richmond, one bottle of stomach contents labeled Donna Richmond, one vial of blood labeled Oscar Clifton, one packet containing pubic hair labeled Donna Richmond, one test tube containing an anal wash labeled Donna Richmond. All right. Now, did you examine the pubic hair material of Donna Jo Richmond for human semen? Yes, I did. And what was your conclusion? My conclusion was that human semen was contained on those pubic hairs. All right. No further questions. Cross-examination by Donahue. You can exclude semen. Is that correct? Of a certain type? That's also possible, yes. All right. Mr. Blake, I note in referring to your report of 2376, do you have a copy of it there, sir? Yes, I do. Paragraph 5. What page was that? 4, Roman numeral 5, subparagraph B. As a result of your examination, did you find that the extract was uninformative with regard to the type of semen? Yes, I, I attempted to, or, well... Let me, let me backtrack just a second. Well, first of all, the answer is yes. Is that correct? Would you repeat the question again? Would you read it back to him, please? The record is read. As a result of your examination, did you find that the extract was uninformative with regard to the type of semen? That's essentially correct, yes. Now, if you have something further you wish to add to it... Okay. The reason for that statement was that there was one particular genetic marker that that was typed in that extract, and that genetic marker is called PGM. It's not related at all to the ABO genetic markers that most people are familiar with. This genetic marker is a protein genetic marker that's typed by a, a different process than ABO blood group substances are typed. Because of the nature of the types in this particular genetic marker, it's sometimes possible to tell if you have a mixture of fluid from two individuals. If these, if the two individuals have a different type. But for this particular marker, Donna Richmond and Oscar Clifton were the same type. So the question that I posed to myself was... Pardon me, objection? I'm not sure if this is responsive. The court. Well, I think you might be getting a little... Would you gentlemen approach the bench? Whereupon a brief discussion was had at the bench outside the hearing of the jury and without the reporter. Mr. Donahue, I have no other questions. Powell, no questions. The court, you may step down. Powell, may this witness be excused, Your Honor? The court, he may be excused.
first thing to notice there is that the finding is incredibly vague. That was Blake's opinion. There is no degree of scientific certainty stated, and Blake and Powell are both very careful to avoid any discussion of exactly how that conclusion was reached. Here is a learned man of science. His opinion is fact. Next, you can't miss the gigantic swerve Blake takes around the question of whether or not the sample was, quote, uninformative with regard to the type of semen. That note from Blake's report referred to the PGM typing, which he concluded was uninformative because Donna and Clifton shared the same PGM type, and Blake believed that any PGM type other than Donna's would have been masked by the high concentration of her menstrual blood on the sample. When Donahue pushed Blake on the question of typing, Blake hedged with essentially and launched into a ramble about PGM typing. Before Donahue got a chance to direct him back to ABO typing, Blake got an assist from Powell and the judge, and the testimony simply stopped. Blake was excused. Blake never attempted ABO typing on the sample he claimed was semen. He sent that back to Grubb, who testified as to his finding of type A at the grand jury, but was not asked about semen or blood typing during the trial. The obvious reason is because that testimony excluded Clifton. The trial jury was left with the impression that either no ABO typing was done on Blake's sample or that Blake did it and it was uninformative as to type. Neither of those things is true, not in the real world of science and facts. However, it's clear that is what Alavezo says that he believes. So, how does a belief about a piece of evidence tested in 1976 turn into wrong facts about a different piece of evidence tested in 2011? by simply ignoring everything that does not conform to your pre-held view. The 2003 letter from Morton's lab stating that the slides did not contain semen? He must have been wrong, or maybe they weren't the same slides. Photos showing that they were the same slides? How do I know those photos are real? Multiple lab reports showing no semen on any item in 2011? They didn't mean semen, they just meant no spermatozoa. The lack of any other testing that did confirm semen? A mistake. It's happened in other cases. Now, Alaveso's original mistaken understanding of the 1976 samples, testing, results, and testimony has overcome all of the lab findings that there was no semen, seminal fluid, or spermatozoa DNA tested in 2011. He believes that there was semen on slide BPH and there is no science or fact-based proof that will change his mind. Okay, but what about the lab results showing that the mixing fluid added to the DNA test of slide VPH was contaminated with unknown male DNA? Alavezo's answer, it didn't happen. He hasn't seen any sign of contamination. At this point, we're fairly sure that Alavezos does not know how Blake formed his opinion that seminal fluid was present on the sample he tested from envelope evidence number two. Blake's opinion was based on seeing color develop when he exposed the sample to acid phosphatase. Even in 1976, it was not scientifically acceptable to state that semen was present based solely on a positive AP test. It was only to be used to identify areas of evidence for further investigation, Here's the thing. Blake and Grubb did all of that further investigation. ABO testing, PGM typing, and microscopic examinations. Everything was negative. The only scientifically sound conclusion in 1976 and 2019 is the AP reacted to something other than semen in the sample 
and the reading was a false positive. California DOJ does not allow analysts to claim that semen has been confirmed through acid phosphatase testing alone. The department's manual contains a chart for lab analysts giving them directions for what they may report based on the results of acid phosphatase testing. Significantly, the chart states that if positive AP testing occurs, but no other confirmatory tests are conducted, the analyst should report that seminal fluid was not confirmed. The procedures warn that AP is present in other bodily fluids, including vaginal secretions, saliva, milk, and feces, indicating the department cannot distinguish between prostatic and non-prostatic acid phosphatase. Some of the other substances known to cause false positive AP reactions are feminine hygiene products, urine, fruit juice including orange, plant matter, and soil fungus and bacteria. We don't know if the tree spray applied to Donna's body when she was found was insecticide, pesticide, or fungicide, but we do know it should have been collected and tested. Given all of the negative findings regarding spermatozoa and physical sexual assault, Blake's semen opinion should have been properly challenged at trial and the issue preserved for appeal. It's clear that Donahue had no experience with AP testing or challenging this type of lab finding. Donahue also relied on his own forensics expert, but it turned out that the expert just took the fees without testing any of the evidence or reviewing the lab reports. He just had Morton give him a verbal brief on the findings. The defense was a shambles on this issue, and that carried forward to all of the appeals. Because Donahue did not challenge Blake's testimony that semen was present on Donna's pubic hair, it became a proven fact that could never be challenged on appeal. So it was repeated again and again, year after year, in every single summary of the case. Because none of the lab notes and reports were given to the defense until 2002, there was literally no way for Clifton or his appeals attorneys to even guess about how Blake had reached that conclusion. Donahue had completely failed to get it on the record during Blake's testimony at trial. So now we know that today, no competent forensic scientist would ever assert or testify that any semen was present in this case. Mr. Alavezos claims that this isn't the standard for a conviction integrity review, and he's totally wrong. That is exactly the standard. That's the significant and critical difference between an appeal and a review. An appeal is based on a record of the case and any new evidence not heard at trial. A review is based on the science as we know it today in 2019. So if Mr. Clifton were still alive, he could lose an appeal on this issue because Donahue didn't object to it at trial. However, we can still prevail in an integrity review because we know today that AP testing reacts positively, quickly, and strongly to many substances other than semen, and that Blake's conclusion was scientifically wrong. The Journal of Clinical Forensic Medicine took up this issue in 2003. The enzyme in seminal acid phosphatase, SAP, responds for a short period of time, starting from the time of emission. The fresher the sample and the more volume present, the stronger the corresponding indication. The inverse is also true. 
At the 24-hour mark, even a sample that is microscopically confirmed as positive for spermatozoa drops to 96.8% positive for AP. At 48 hours, that drops to 88.9%. 48 hours is considered to be the maximum threshold for adequate testing. After 48 hours, the AP result declines rapidly, but sources other than SAP would not, and that indicates contamination. After a positive indication, the researcher must identify a minimum threshold for the total count of spermatozoa in the microscope field of view at 40 times magnification, necessary to prove confirmation of a positive test result for the presence of semen. Alavezos also managed to find a reverse way to support his argument that semen was present on slide BPH. It had to be semen. That's the only source of male cellular material that could be on the slide. As we've said, he's still pretending that the lab's mixing fluid used in the test was not contaminated by an unknown male. That aside, really? That's the hill where he wants to make his last stand? Okay. How could male skin cells or spittle have ended up on slide VPH prior to the lab in Fresno in 2011? Obviously, we need to start with any male who stood over, talked near, or touched Donna's body from the time it was discovered in the grove until the pubic hair sample was put in the envelope at autopsy. That's from roughly 1.30 to 6.50 p.m. We're not going to count Jesse Renteria, who found Donna's body while driving his spray rig the grove worker he told, or their foreman who came over to take a look before calling TCSO. They stated that they didn't go anywhere near Donna, touch her, or turn her over, and they were scared enough of being implicated in a murder that we believed them. First, we'll need to get Y-DNA samples from all of the TCSO officers who were at the body scene. Those that we can name are... Forrest Barnes, Brian Johnson, Bob Bird, Mike King, Richard Holguin, Vernon Hensley, and Thomas McKinney. We also know that the coroner, Dr. Miller, and Donna's uncle would need to be eliminated. There were those two unnamed males who worked for Evans Miller Funeral Home who came to the grove, picked up Donna's body, and transported her in their vehicle. We'll need to confirm that the cells don't belong to either of them. We've gone back over all of the TCSO and coroner reports again, and there is absolutely no evidence that anyone from either office traveled with Donna's body to maintain chain of custody. This single fact should have been the beginning, middle, and end of the Conviction Integrity Review. Chain of custody was broken before Donna's body ever reached autopsy. This is not a small point. It's the entire case. There is no way to know if anything was changed, taken from, or added to Donna's body while it was out of view of sworn officers. This could have happened accidentally and totally innocently if someone untrained in evidence preservation replaced an item that had fallen off or attempted to cover Donna's modesty. It could have occurred if someone had normal human curiosity and removed a cover to look at the body. Someone could have felt bad for how she looked and attempted to straighten or clean her. We're not talking about monsters abusing Donna's body. We're talking about caring people who are not trained to handle victims of complex homicides. All assertions that chain of custody exists for this sample of Donna's pubic hair are nothing more than wishful thinking. We don't know who was present at the hospital or came in contact with Donna's body there. We have no idea if the x-ray technician was male or female. All of that information would need to be checked. The same with anyone who is at Neil Ranch, the funeral home, or present at autopsy that we don't have documented in reports. 
We just don't know who or how many individuals that may be. To be fair, we have to include Donna's boyfriend on this list, since she was last seen alone with him. Okay, now let's go back and cover all of the objects from those same hours that will need to be checked to see if they were contaminated with any male cells. Any instruments Dr. Miller used at the scene, such as a body temperature thermometer. Any sheet, blanket, or covering placed over Donna's body in the grove. The body bag or wrap used by the mortuary workers to transport Donna's body and any gurney they used. The x-ray table and gurney used at the hospital. Any and all surfaces upon which Donna's body was placed at Evans Miller. All instruments used at autopsy, especially the one used to remove the sample of Donna's pubic hair and the evidence envelope used to hold the hair. Donna's pubic hair next traveled to the forensics lab in Oakland. We know that Chuck Morton, Mike Grubb, and George Loquem accessed that envelope. All of the other males who worked in or walked through the lab would also need to be eliminated as contributors of the male cells on slide VPH. Grubb then sent the envelope on to Ed Blake in Berkeley. We have absolutely no idea how many males worked in that lab or may have passed through and contaminated surfaces in the lab prior to Blake removing all of the evidence from envelope number two for examination. You would need to test every surface that the pubic hair came into contact with while it was out of the evidence envelope and all instruments that touched the sample, such as tweezers. That would be true for both the Oakland and Berkeley labs. We don't know when the hairs on slide VPH were removed from evidence number two, or if in fact they came from that envelope, or even belonged to Donna. There is zero chain of evidence on that slide. There are no lab notes that reference the mounting of those hairs, the slide does not contain an evidence number, and there is no written record of its existence prior to 2002. Slide VPH could never, in any way, be considered an item of evidence in the case, not for any purpose. Let's go back and pretend that the hairs on slide VPH did come from evidence envelope number two. Our best guess as to when that slide was created is between March and June of 1976. So, after the envelope came back from Berkeley. The Oakland lab did a lot of hair comparisons in the months leading up to the trial, and it's most logical to assume that's when slide VPH was created. We would have to eliminate male skin cells from the person who made the slide, any surfaces in the workspace, the slide itself, the slide cover, and the medium used to affix the cover to the slide. Now we have to face the years between 1976 and 2011. Where was the slide? How was it stored? And who had access to it? Normally, an item of evidence has a chain of custody record. So anyone who accesses the item records that contact and exactly what they did. All we know for sure is that at some point, the slide cover on VPH was either removed or fell off and someone put it back on with scotch tape. The scotch tape was clean and white in 2011 and appeared to be more of the modern invisible type rather than the old 70s cellophane tape. To say that this is a completely unacceptable way to handle, preserve, or document a biological slide would be a waste of breath. This slide should have gone in the garbage, not to Fresno for DNA testing. 
we also have an endless number of questions about the cardboard mailer used to transport slide VPH from Hayward to Fresno. We literally screamed in shock the first time we saw a photo of that mailer. For some totally inexplicable reason, Chuck Morton wrapped slide VPH in with slide 54, together, touching. Why, why, why? We have no clue. Can we throw this slide in the garbage yet? While all of the people and items we've discussed are equally likely to have contributed male cells to slide VPH, we want to discuss our biggest concern about contamination of this slide. As we discussed in the last episode, most of the 47 slides disclosed by Morton in 2002 had evidence numbers which conformed to the original item of evidence. So, for instance, on slide VPH, we should see a number 2 to show that it came from the envelope of Donna's pubic hair collected at autopsy. But we don't. The only other slides that were prepared in this way, apparently at the same time, are a slide marked Clifton's pubic hair, two slides labeled Clifton's back of head hair, three slides with hairs from the front of Clifton's head, two slides from the right side of Clifton's head, two slides with hairs from the top of Clifton's head, and two slides that are marked hairs from the left side of Clifton's head. The last page of the photocopies just makes us angry. There are the final two slides with no evidence numbers sitting side by side, touching one another. One says Clifton head hair. The other is marked DJ Richmond head hair. You can literally see Donna's hair sticking out from under the slide cover, totally exposed. We don't have to wonder how male DNA could have contaminated slide VPH, or even how Clifton's own DNA could be on that slide. We can see it all in a single photo. There are 15 slides that Morton claims to have made that were hair reference slides, not evidence slides. 13 of those contain Clifton's hairs, and two are Donna's hairs. Made in the same lab, by the same person, at the same time, using the same workstation and tweezers. Hey, Mr. Alavezos, tell us again how you have no questions about the evidence in this case, or how you've seen no signs of possible contamination. Oh, and please explain again how the only possible source of male DNA on slide VPH came from semen. Turning away from the evidence and making random misstatements of facts is disgraceful. Stating that semen was DNA tested in 2011 and that, quote, in 1976, the criminalist was unable to obtain a blood type for this particular semen are lies. And we'd like to remind you of the rules of professional conduct for attorneys that bind you. Specifically, that you must be truthful in all of your statements of facts, and that you must not make statements that are true, but omit critical information and are therefore misleading. There are only two choices here. Number one, Mr. Alavesos reviewed the autopsy, lab notes, criminalist reports, and court transcripts, and then knowingly lied about what they said. Or, number two, Tulare County destroyed most of its copy of the Richmond case file, Mr. Alavezos did not review any of the primary documents, and he simply made up statements of fact that fit the DA's desire to maintain Clifton's conviction and exonerate Joe D'Angelo in Donna's murder. Just to be clear, willful ignorance of the facts does not make these statements true or mean that they were made in good faith. It would simply mean that the lies were not made knowingly. In that case, 
now that the DA's office is aware of the true facts, they should immediately correct their report and issue a new press release. We feel pretty confident that that won't happen, but we're willing to take it up with the Bar Association and Attorney General. As we've said, this is not a PR war or a battle in the court of public opinion. This is a legal report on a wrongful conviction, and it additionally impacts Jennifer Armour's unsolved murder and the current prosecution of Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. in several circumstantial evidence homicides. We feel like the Tulare DA's office might be trying to give the impression that they are not allowed to review documents from the defense for lab files, only their own files. That is not only false, but refusing to look at those documents is a gross breach of duty in a conviction integrity review. We've posted those standards on our Facebook page and webpage blog, and we'll talk about them a little more in our next episode. As attorneys, we are bound to the same rules as Mr. Alavezos and Mr. Ward. We don't lie, mislead, or even make statements of fact that cannot be supported by authentic documents in our possession. We have no personal, professional, or financial interest in the outcome of Clifton's conviction, and we have volunteered thousands of hours to work on this case. All expenses are paid out of our own pockets, and we've rejected offers of advertisers and book deals. We simply found an injustice and evidence connecting serial cases in Tulare County to the East Area Rapist and original Night Stalker. The truth has no side, and finding it should be the only goal in this case. It's the oath every attorney takes. If either Mr. Alavezos or Mr. Ward believes that he has taken an oath to maintain past convictions at all costs or to cover the crimes of a former police officer, he is mistaken. We were also interested, but not surprised, to hear D.A. Ward say that the details of Clifton's 1965 conviction convinced him of Clifton's guilt in the Richmond case. A full 31% of the D.A.'s report is about the 1965 trial. This is evidence that was excluded from the Richmond trial, and details testimony that directly conflicts with TCSO's own investigation into the facts on the beach that day. After we spoke with the young woman involved with that case and heard her story, we attempted to verify it with as many solid facts as possible. We've posted the documents we have on Facebook and our website blog and past posts on this issue. The simplest recap of the actual proven facts totally ignored by the DA's report are Miller gave multiple conflicting accounts of what he saw and heard. Was he driving on the bridge and heard screams? Did he pull off on the river siding road to turn around and see a scuffle? Or was he parked at the top of the riverbank the entire time? In any case, in no version of his story did he leave his truck, attempt to help the young woman, or approach Clifton. Clifton never attempted to flee the scene or tried to deny that he had walked by the girl as she was leaving the beach. There was never any assertion that Clifton was armed with a weapon. In fact, he had nothing but the swim trunks he was wearing. Clifton readily agreed to a search of his car, which failed to turn up a stocking mask or any other evidence. TCSO officers responded, spoke to all parties, searched for a stocking in the bushes, and allowed Clifton to leave the scene. TCSO took no photographs of injuries, did not call an ambulance, or transport the young woman to the hospital for an exam or treatment. In fact, she rode away alone on her bike with no escort. Nobody 
including the woman, was concerned that Clifton was a threat or danger to her. The DA's report makes no mention of the closeness and age between Clifton and the young woman, or the fact that their mothers were co-workers who resolved any misunderstanding on the phone the next day. Of course, most importantly, the DA's report makes no mention of Bob Bird, then an officer for Farmersville PD, not TCSO. There's no question that it was Bird that escalated the situation from a simple misunderstanding to criminal charges. Ward also does not include the fact that Clifton was not arrested at the scene or after a complaint by the young woman. Rather, he was arrested out of his bed at home several nights later by Bird without valid probable cause. The report also ignores the evidence that the DA refused to charge Clifton and he was set to be released. So on a Saturday morning, several TCSO officers went to the young woman's home in an attempt to get her to sign a statement. When she refused, they transported her to her sister's house in a police car. At the sister's house, both the young woman and her mother told the TCSO officers that they did not want to file a complaint. So the officers then transported the young woman and her sister from Farmersville to Visalia to sign a pre-typed statement, which was then presented to the DA. The young woman has told us that she felt intimidated and scared and that her older sister told her to sign the statement so that TCSO would not make trouble for their family. There is nothing contained in TCSO's own report of this incident which contradicts her story. So why did the DA spend a full one-third of the report on Clifton's conviction in the Richmond case on testimony from a completely unrelated case that occurred 10 years earlier? Simple. It's all they have. This is like asking why Powell filed charges for a non-existent rape and sodomy and mentioned it to the press for four months before silently dropping it. If Clifton was not a deviant sex monster, the kind of person who would commit such a terrible murder there is no motive. Why would he suddenly, at age 35, leave work, grab a girl he didn't know, and stab her to death in an orange grove where he'd never been? The reason that the judge did not allow any testimony about the 1965 case at trial is because its only purpose would have been to paint Clifton as a bad person. It had no relevance to where he was on December 26, 1975, or whether or not he killed Donna. It didn't prove that his alibi was false, that he knew Donna, had ever been to Neal Ranch, or that he had a history of stabbing or threatening people with a knife. That's exactly how D.A. Ward is using it now. If D.A. Ward is horrified by Stanley Miller's testimony that he saw a young woman knocked down on a beach, we have to assume he'd pass out if he read about this. This is VPD Report McGowan, October 15, 1975. Monday, 1630 hours. Reporting agent and Lieutenant Jump re-interviewed victim Elizabeth Ann Snelling at the Visalia Police Department in the office of Lieutenant Robert Jump. The victim was requested to go over the incident again in its entirety in order to pick up any information that may have been left out in the initial interviews with investigating officers. The victim was then asked to go over the complete incident in regards to the morning of the occurrence. She stated that she was sleeping in a shorty nightgown, had a sheet and blanket or covers up to her midsection, as she always slept this way because she is somewhat cold-blooded. 
She related further that the bathroom light was on and the bathroom door was open and the back porch light was on. She did not recall exactly what time she went to bed. It was around 10 or 10.30. However, she was not certain at this time. She related further that she checked the back door and it was locked. She also checked said window adjacent to the door and noticed that it was open. However, the curtains were closed and she believed the screen was intact. She was asked about the screen, whether she was certain it was intact. She stated she was fairly certain. She had been sitting in the back porch earlier with her boyfriend, and she remembers looking at the screen and window and feels that the screen was intact at that time. She continued to state that she then went to bed and that she is somewhat of a sound sleeper, and then the next thing she remembers, she was awakened by someone's hand over her face, and that the subject had his left hand on her right arm, holding it tightly, and his hand over her mouth and nose, smothering her. She then took her right hand and attempted to pull his hand away so she could breathe, and he at this time stated to her in somewhat of a whisper or a growl, as she described it, Don't scream or I will stab you to death. She related he was wearing a ski mask, black in color, with white stripes completely around it, and all she could see was his eyes. She related further that the suspect then stated, You are coming with me, and that he reached back and removed a pistol with his left hand from his rear waistband or rear pocket. She is not certain of which. She related that they got off the bed on the left side, referring to the area between the two twin beds, that he then took her by the arm, and at this point she does not recall which arm. She believes it was her left arm, and he was using his right hand to pull her out of said bed. She also was asked if the subject was on top of her, and she stated yes, he was, and that when she was awakened by his hand smothering her, she felt his full body weight on her body, and she could not move her legs, and that she is positive he was laying in a prone position across the top of her, and that the covers were still between her and the suspect's body, and that his face was close to hers. She stated further that the reason that she had changed her story in regards to the gun is that she had just remembered that he removed the gun when he was on top of her and not in the other room, as she had previously mentioned. She stated after he pulled her out of the bed by the arm, they went into the barbecue room, where he started out the rear door with her. She was then interrupted and asked how she could see him or describe him, and she related that there was enough light from the back porch light and the bathroom light to give her enough light to see fairly well. She stated that somewhere in the area between the back door and her bedroom door, she tried to break away from the suspect by pulling back and trying to jerk away from him. But he at this time had a hold of her left arm with what she believes was his right hand. He also had the gun in his left hand. She stated that this made quite a bit of noise and she was crying. There was some scuffle and she feels that this is the noise that caused her father to wake up. She related further that they moved very slowly as she was resisting the suspect, and he was somewhat dragging her out the back door. And they got to the back door. She noticed that the door was standing open. She's not certain of how much. Could be one or two feet. She also stated that when they went out the back door, the porch light was still on, that they got into the patio area, and he took her through the gate, which was standing open. As they got just past the gate on the other side of the fence, she heard her father yelling something like, Hey, what's going on? where are you going with my daughter? And that she then stopped as the suspect released her near the westmost gatepost on the south side of the fence and looked at her father, who she could see coming through the house. And her father stopped momentarily near the bar in the kitchen area and looked at her, and she could see him. She stated he then proceeded out the rear door, yelling something to the effect of, hey, where are you going with my daughter? What do you want? And she was at this time watching her father as he came out the back door and down the steps onto the patio and that the suspect had pointed the gun at him and her father put his arm as if to jump the fence. At that time, the suspect fired two shots. She related further that her father fell back after the first shot and the suspect then fired the second shot. 
She does not know if he fired double action, and she's not sure which hand he used to fire the weapon. She stated there was just a brief pause between the first and second shot. She related that she continued to watch her father, and he staggered back toward the back door of the residence. She stated the suspect then turned the gun and pointed it at her, and took it away, and then kicked her two or three times. She's not sure which foot he used to kick her with. She was crying at this time and looking down. She related further that she then observed the suspect run down the drive and that he disappeared running westbound in the area of the south bedroom window. She also stated she does not know the type of shoes that the suspect was wearing. However, they seemed to be of a softer texture than a regular shoe. She also stated that when she got up and ran in the house, her father had already gone back in and headed toward the front of said residence. This was the last time she saw the suspect. She was asked how long she was with the suspect totally. She stated approximately three minutes. However, she's not certain. She was asked again about the conversation and the hand used by the suspect to discharge the weapon. And she stated she was not certain whether it was right or left hand, that she first believed it was his left hand. However, at this time, she's not certain. She was asked how fast the suspect ran. Did he have a limp? She related that he ran at a normal gait not what she would refer to as fast or slow. She stated further that his eyes appeared to be very dark, or what she could see of them appeared to be dark, appeared to be very mean. She stated further that the description of suspect is still the same as initially reported. She feels the suspect was a fairly strong person, and she would compare him to her boyfriend, and stated she felt that the suspect was stronger. The victim was then asked if she had any idea who the responsible party might be, whether it be a classmate or a previous friend, she stated she had no idea. She felt she had never seen or had contact with the suspect before. She also related that the voice was in a growl and that she didn't feel that she would be able to recognize it again because she felt that it was obviously disguised. Stated further that the voice was very demanding and deliberate and it was not wavering or shaky or nervous. Stated further that she had a feeling the suspect was in command of the situation and did not appear to be undecided on any of his moves. Maybe Orange County can send D.A. Ward a copy of the police reports and crime scene photos from the murder of 18-year-old Janelle Cruz in Irvine in 1986. That's a case of a living monster beating a girl to death so severely that two of her teeth were found in her hair. That case had real semen, and it was matched to Joseph James D'Angelo Jr., the man Ward just exonerated based on lies or willful ignorance. To be fair... D.A. Ward does mention D'Angelo in his report. He just leaves out a few details, like the fact that on 12-26-75, D'Angelo lived in Exeter, about two miles from Neal Ranch, and just south of Marinette, right along Donna's route home. The fact that on 12-26-75, D'Angelo was a sergeant in the Exeter Police Department and had a uniform, badge, and police car that he was allowed to take home. The fact that D.A. Ward has charged D'Angelo for the murder of Claude Snelling as D'Angelo was kidnapping Claude's daughter from her bed in the middle of the night. The fact that D.A. Ward has argued that D'Angelo has also committed over 100 ransacking burglaries in Visalia in 1974 and 1975 and attempted to kill Visalia PD agent McGowan when McGowan tried to execute a lawful arrest of D'Angelo. The fact that D'Angelo has been charged in 13 homicides and 13 kidnappings associated with armed home invasion rapes. The fact that 
TCSO has named D'Angelo as a suspect in the kidnapping and murder of Jennifer Armour, who was killed one and a half miles due north of Neal Ranch, or that link the Richmond and Armour homicides. And finally, D.A. Ward didn't mention a particular M.O. point shared by the Visalia ransacker and East Area rapist that VPD Sergeant Vaughn tried to warn the citizens of Sacramento about on the front page of the Sacramento Union on Saturday, July 11, 1978. Both men have been known to have this peculiarity of taking things, not of special value, from one house and leaving them at other houses. We don't know how many times the East Area Rapist may have tried to frame innocent people using this trick, but we know which attempt came closest to being successful. After the October 9, 1976 EAR attack, while officers were still busy processing the scene, they were approached by the victim's next-door neighbor. The neighbor asked what was going on, and they described it as a burglary investigation. The neighbor, a young man whose parents were away for the weekend, stated that he thought the burglar had been in his home too. He stated that when he arrived home, he found his back door unlocked and the chain set on the front door. He hadn't found anything missing or disturbed. A little while later, the neighbor returned with a plastic bag that contained some rings and old coins. He said that upon searching his house, he had found the bag in his parents' bedroom, but he was sure that it didn't belong to them. The officers took the bag, booked it into evidence, and the neighbor became the number one suspect in the EAR case. There were a few things that seemed to fit with the neighbor. When the EAR left the victim, he told her not to scream or call for help because he lived nearby and he would hear her. The victim also said that she did not hear any vehicle drive away and assumed that the attacker had walked home. The neighbor's bedroom window faced that of the victim, and he drove a car that was consistent with one spotted near another EAR attack. If that had been the EAR's final attack in Sacramento, it might have been game over for that neighbor. However, luckily for him, investigators assigned a two-man surveillance team, and the deputies were able to confirm the neighbor's location during a later attack. They ended up being his alibi. As Sergeant Vaughn has said, he had never seen a criminal break into a citizen's house just to plant evidence from another crime. That person has been identified as Joseph James D'Angelo Jr., and we continue to believe that he planted Clifton's invoice book next to Donna's bike and should be fully investigated in her murder. 